You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The wedding industry in the United States generates more than $60 billion a year. Cakes, his and hers, dresses, tuxes, flowers, venues, and more. And all of it is built around a narrative that everyone needs to find the one in order to be happy. And when you find the one who makes you happy, then you need to spend excessive amounts of money so that your day is perfect and you will be happy. You know the story. You can walk into a bookstore if you ever do that sort of thing anymore. And in the magazine section, there's a big section devoted to wedding planning. You need this. You need that. If you don't have one of these, the latest thing, you won't be happy. And you deserve to be happy. You should get what you deserve. That's the story. We're all familiar with it. And in light of that story, in light of the reality of that story, the Apostle Paul and what he has to say about marriage should strike us with abruptness. It should give us pause. Because it's very clear on a surface level reading that the Apostle Paul does not share the narrative perpetuated by the wedding industry. He's got a story. But his story isn't their story, and their story is certainly not his story. Paul does not share our assumptions about marriage. He does not perpetuate the myth that your marriage is primarily about you and your happiness. He says absolutely nothing about finding the one. And he says absolutely nothing about our happiness. Maybe. You may be prompted then to ask, preacher or Paul, (laughs) what's the story? What's the point? What is marriage about, according to Paul? What does it mean if it's not about all of the things that are we are immersed in whether it's radio or television or social media or magazines, all of those things that we're constantly immersed in and here's what it ought to be and here's what my friends had and I want to do better than they did because it's obviously a competition about who can have the best (laughs) wedding. What do you mean, Paul? What are you after here? What are you talking about? What What are we needing to see about this institution of marriage that will help us? And I think Paul might answer our question with another question. I wonder if he wouldn't hear all of our questions 
and just sort of sit back for a moment and said, consider this. Not making a claim here, just raising a question. What if your marriage is more about your holiness than it is about your happiness? What if your marriage is more about your holiness than it is about your happiness? Our bottom line comes in the form of a question, and that question will drive our reflections as we look at this text. Now, some of you are probably already saying, I'm not married. Should I go home, go wait in the Sunday school class? What do I do? And I'm glad you asked. At times, when we're preaching through whole texts of Scripture, the Scriptures will address one subgroup of the church. That does not mean that everyone else should ignore what the text has to say in that place. And so let's think about it this way. There are three types of single persons. Number one, there are those who are single but have been married before. Perhaps a spouse died, perhaps they are divorced. Perhaps you have children who are married or siblings. Perhaps you have friends, undoubtedly you have friends because you're in the room with them who are married. The better you understand God's purposes in marriage, the better you will be able to bear one another in love as we have been exhorted already in Ephesians. These things may not be immediately applicable to your own life because the Lord may have you in a different place of life. Nevertheless, you're in a position to pray earnestly for the people around you who you love. Perhaps to advise them with scriptural wisdom based upon what you've learned from the text. Another group is single now, but will be married later. Let me just say, it's never too early to start thinking about how God wants you to relate to your spouse later. It's never too early to start thinking about, considering, and having your world and expectations and assumptions about your future marriage shaped by the Word of God. Some of you are single and will never be married. In that instance, the advice or the counsel of Scripture is similar to those who have been married and are not now. You are in a position to offer wisdom, encouragement, counsel to brothers and sisters in Christ who are married. And while we're talking about singleness, let me say this. The Bible commends Christian singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, I'm single. You should consider that as well. Modeled by our Lord Jesus Christ, who was never married. Modeled by the Apostle Paul and commended by him. We have done a really bad job, and part of it has to do with that $60 billion industry we're talking about, that says, if you're not married and if you don't have the perfect wedding, you're just not living yet. Does that resonate? 
especially in Christian subcultures, that's a thing. It's also a lie. It's a lie. If singleness is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for his followers. And here's the thing, friends. We perpetuate the myth that marriage is essential to full human living and full human happiness in some of the simple ways we talk. If we say to our kids, you know, one day you'll get married. Or if we say, when you get married, finish the sentence. When perhaps we could say, you know, if you get married. And after all, the Bible does clearly commend both Christian marriage and Christian singleness. And both, both require radical self-denial. And both embody and dramatize the gospel in their own unique ways. Singleness by saying, here's what it looks like to be singularly devoted to Jesus. And marriage by saying, I'm devoted to this person singularly as a way of embodying the singular devotion of Jesus for his church. Okay? So one thing we're going to do as we talk about Christian marriage is not say, you got to get here to be completely human or fully Christian. That is not what we're saying. Okay? So what are we saying? Well, it's helpful, and this won't surprise you, it's helpful to understand that marriage in the ancient Roman Empire was radically different than it is in 21st century North American culture. For one thing, in the Roman Empire, society was highly stratified. That means it was a class structure system. You had the upper class, you had the lower class. And the upper class comprised maybe 2% of the population. That's a generous estimate probably fewer people. And the upper class had its own kind of subclasses within it. At the very top was a group of folks called senators. You've probably maybe seen movies where you got Roman senators and they're wearing a toga or something and they're really, uh, you know, everyone defers to them and they've got all the honor and those kinds of things. Just below the senators was a group called the equestrians. It comes uh, because earlier in Roman's history, it was a group of knights who rode horses, and so now they're called equestrians, though they weren't necessarily knights at this point in the history of the empire. Below them was a group called the Decurians. A lot of these folks were, you know, authorized to administrate cities around the empires and thing like, things like that. The stratification depended on your income. So if you made X amount of sesterces, if you want to get into the deep history of it, we'll call it dollars for sake of ease. If you make X amount this per year, you're a decurion. If you make a, this much, you're an equestrian. If you make this much, you're a senator. And they were very, some of them were very intentional about saying, and if you're a senator and you lose some of your wealth, guess what? You get bumped down the ladder a little bit. Highly stratified, and you always show honor to the people who are above you. You always defer the people who are above you. That's the upper class, and honor was crucially important, and the stratification was cru crucially important. They defined themselves against one another. In the lower class, honor was very important, uh, though the upper class folks didn't see the lower class folks as honorable, honorable at all. They kind of divvied themselves up into groups, free and slave. Uh, they, they fell into different categories, and even in, among slaves, which was not an ethnic matter, 
uh, in the ancient world, uh, slaves had kind of caste and class systems within themselves, and free persons did as well. So you need to know that in the Roman world, society is class structure. There is a ladder, and you know where you are. You know whether it's possible to get up the, up the ladder a bit, and you know it is possible that you might get bumped down the ladder a bit as well. There's no middle class whatsoever, like none. You've got the wealthy, and you've got the people who live day to day trying to put bread on the table every day, and that's all they've got. The entire society, as we've said, is absolutely 24-7 consumed with gaining honor. This comes up a lot of times in our preaching because the world the New Testament was written in is a world consumed with honor. And honor is a limited good. So if you've got some, and I don't have as much as I want, and I can kind of get one over on you or challenge you in public, and you don't have a good enough comeback, you lose honor and I get it. Particularly for Roman men, life was a 24-7. I'm on the defensive that somebody might take my honor, and I'm on the offensive that I might get somebody else's. In that world, marriage is not about romance. It's not about love. It's not about your soulmate, and it's not primarily about your happiness. It is about how can we increase the honor of our family. with a marriage that is advantageous. Maybe it involves a political connection. Maybe it resolves a conflict between some families. Maybe it involves a substantial transfer of wealth that helps us out in the strata of society, stratification of society. But in that world, marriage is about gaining honor, not about finding the one. That concept would have been entirely foreign to them. Paul's vision of marriage, then, you can begin to see already, is stunningly, abruptly, and deeply countercultural. He doesn't perpetuate the narrative that, hey, you need to find somebody who can bring you up in society. He says, hey, you need to find someone through whom you, so that that person can be sanctified through your self-giving love. He doesn't say, hey, you need to find a strategic match. He says, you need to treat this person like the Lord treats you. There's no strategy in that. There's no aspirations. It's not about gaining honor. It's about embodying the character of Jesus. Marriage for Paul reproduces the character of Jesus in his people. Listen to a few of the things he says again. He says, the wives, with his instructions to them, should engage themselves as to the Lord. You and your husband have both been joined to Jesus, and you regard one another as people who've been joined to Jesus. The way that you act to one another, you are acting as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You embody a certain character in the context of this relationship. That character is the character of Jesus, and that defines your marriage. It's not about getting one up on someone else. It's not about dominating a societal trend or 
uh, expectation. It's not about the transfer of wealth or power. It's about embodying the character of Jesus. We're going to talk more about that. But for Paul, Christian marriage is first and foremost about the sanctification of the people of God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for the purpose of making his church what? Holy. Ephesians 5, 26. So whatever it is that Jesus does for his church, it is somehow replicated, embodied, dramatized, amplified, proclaimed in the union of a man and a woman in, mar- in marriage. Now we need to talk about a little bit about this text because some questions come along. And there are challenges that come with it. I mentioned a few moments ago that some of you may have translations where the paragraph starts a bit differently. I'm kind of curious if you still have your Bibles open. My paragraph started with verse 21. Did anyone have one that started with verse 22? Like I literally want to see. I could probably guess which translation it is, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so the question then becomes, why does one group of translators, because how to, Paul wrote in Greek, and a bunch of scholars with PhDs in Hebrew and Greek and Old Testament, New Testament come together, 60, 70 people sometimes, and form a translation committee. And sometimes you can even find their names. And maybe you heard of a couple of them because you used their book in women's Bible study or Sunday school or something like that. And, and they come together and they look at the grammar and they look at the history and they look at the context and they say, well, we could put it this way or we could put it that way, one way or another. They have to make decisions. And when Paul wrote Ephesians, guess what he didn't include? Paragraphs. When the New Testament was written, ancient, in the ancient world, paper was really expensive, and ink was really expensive, and you didn't waste it. So you kind of run one side to the other side, almost to the edge of the paper. Forget those nice, neat one and a quarter inch margins. You didn't put spaces in between your words. You just ran the words right up against one another. And so you only really can can figure out what it means if you read it out loud and kind of hear yourself pronouncing the words. You know, you just kind of run, you got this whole line of strung together in a single, you know, unending, massive chunk of words. No paragraph breaks, no verses, no chapters, none of that. Just a bunch of words crammed together. And so when we translate these things, we come together and we say, well, you know, it wouldn't be terribly helpful if we just took our English and crammed it all together the way they do. You'd probably like some margins. You'd probably like some indentations. You might even like a few headings to help you keep up with where you are and kind of get an idea of what the apostle is up to. The trouble with this passage is that Paul has this really long sentence that begins way back in verse 18. I've resisted the urge to diagram it for you completely, but I thought a bullet point chart might be helpful. The sentence starts in verse 18 with one command to the whole church. The command says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Christians, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul. What does that entail? And in the ancient world, in Greek, if you're a grammar nerd, this is for you. For the rest of the other 99% of you, just hang on. When you have a regular verb, like a command, be filled, 
and you want to kind of fill in the picture, you use another part of speech called a participle. Anybody got participles hanging around anywhere? Maybe you've heard of dangling participles. You can look that up later. And if you have your main verb, and then you run some participles under it, they sound kind of like verbs, but they also explain things a little bit more, and it kind of it's almost like a bullet point. The Great Commission works this way. Make disciples is the main verb by going, baptizing, and teaching. One big command, three participles. Kind of like bullet points, right? So we're thinking participles here, just think bullet points. So what are the participles and the bullet points in first, or first Corinthians, in Ephesians 5? The command, the heading, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, this is why I said it would be really good to just keep the app open or keep your Bible open. The first participle, the first bullet point to explain what it looks like to be filled in the Spirit is, our translations say singing, it's actually speaking. It's kind of a cultural, uh, like we think of singing psalms, but Paul says, speak psalms. Hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves. So the first participle comes in verse, I think I have 19 up there, but it's, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, verse 19, singing, speaking psalms, and then the second one is singing. The third one is making melody, and this is kind of the word you would use if you had a guitar and you pluck out a melody. That's, that's the idea going on there. So we've got spoken, this is a gathering of a church, you've got the spoken word, hymns, creeds, instructions, things like that, songs, psalms, you've got Singing, which we, we do and we love that. You've got making melody, which may refer to instrumentation. And then you've got, in verse 20, giving thanks. These are still partisan, bullet points. Be filled with the Spirit, and as you're filled with the Spirit, you will speak, sing, you'll make melodies, you will give thanks. And then the fifth one, there are five, the fifth one is to the church being subject to one another. So everything Paul says about marriage comes in a context of mutual submission of the whole church, one Christian to another. Okay? There are ways that I submit to you, and there are ways that you submit to me, and there are ways that you submit to one another, and all of those are ways that the people of God embody self-denial and other-oriented love. Self-denial, self-giving love. And that must characterize the entire church. And if it doesn't, we're not walking in the Spirit. So for Paul, the whole thing runs this way. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, melody, giving thanks, and being subject to one another. Now here's the fun part. Our translators jump in, and everybody has a framework. And I'm not telling you this to erode your trust in your translation. Let me be real clear. I'm telling you this so that you can just dig in more deeply and find out what's really going on. And if you have maybe like a new international version on one hand and a new revised standard version on the other hand and everything's going along and it's real nice and they're pretty close and then you see this, hey, that's weird. This group of translators put the paragraph break there and this other group put it a verse above. Like, that's weird. What's going on and why don't they agree? 
dig in more deeply. Call me up. I'd love to have a chat with you about it. We can kind of, you know, I can point you in the right direction and we can learn about the Scriptures together and what the Lord wants to do. But here's the crucial thing. Verse 21 is not a new sentence. There's another participle. (laughs) Sorry. It pulls, it modifies the last participle. So you've got your chart. Being subject to one another. And then Paul says, as a, like all the Christians, and then as a subset of that. So here's our second level bullet point. If you like bullet points, this is your sermon. Wives to the husbands. Interestingly, there's no verb in that phrase in the Greek. It doesn't say, wives submit or subject yourselves. It just says, the wives to the husband. Now here's, now that may sound like a nice excuse, but here's the problem. Anytime Greek does that, you go back to the last sentence and grab the verb and just bring it down. (laughs) It's it's just how it works, I promise. And so it's a fair translation to say, wives, be subject to your husbands. It's taking a sentence in Greek that would sound really weird if we just stuck it in English. We'd go, what in the, like, what were the, who wants this translation? It makes no sense in English. Go back and grab the participle or the verbal idea from the previous sentence and just bring it down to the next bit, okay? Because you've got a big category, everybody submits to one another, and here's what that looks like fleshed out in marriage. Because there are married people in the church, and there's a specific application of this. And it is specifically applied in two ways. The general mutual submission of the whole church to one another is expressed from wives to husbands, and in verse 25, from husbands to wives. There is a mutuality that Paul articulates here, that when this verse is used to dominate, denigrate, or make women feel like second-class participants in a marriage is failed to see. So you need to see this. Be filled with the Spirit. That means mutual submission amongst all people. That means the wives render honor and respect to their husbands, and it means husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. We tracking? I know that was kind of a... <laughs> Maybe a little more like a lecture than a sermon, but sometimes we got to go there. If you want a copy of the slide, let me know later and you can have it. So what do, we, what do we do with that? What's going on here? It's crucial to see, and this is why we started with verse 21 instead of verse 22, because a lot of the translations start the paragraph with, wives, submit to your husbands. What I want you to see is that that instruction is set within the larger ministry of the church where everyone defers to one another in some way. Okay, That's the train of thought. It's a simple analysis of the grammar and syntax of the passage. It should not be controversial. So what does this marriage look like? What's going on? Well, when Paul speaks to wives, like we, we read this, And we live in an egalitarian society. We're very focused on everyone being equal and having the same rights. Like the Romans were not interested in any sort of equal rights whatsoever. Everyone submitted to somebody, right? Decurians, remember those guys? Third rung in the upper class. They had to defer and submit to the equestrians, the knights. Second rung in the upper class. And those guys had to defer and submit to the senators who had to defer and submit to the emperor, who had to defer and submit to the gods. So in the ancient world, everybody submits to somebody. In a world where honor is the primary category, like this is it. 
You honor people who are above you or else you get knocked down in the, in the ladder of shame instead of up the ladder of honor. Right? You better honor your betters or else it's going to be bad news for you. You're going to lose your network. They will break their contracts with you. They won't let you into the country club. All of that stuff. Everybody submits to somebody. What Paul says here, as far as women are concerned, is thoroughly uncontroversial in the ancient world. We kind of react against it because, like, we don't submit to anybody, <laughs> right? You know, don't tread on me is a model. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the American way, right? Like, we don't, like, you come in here and tell me I can't do something, ah, like, <laughs> I'm going to show you just what I can do. I'll do it just because you said I can't. Amen? You shouldn't say amen to that. <laughs> you see the difference though, right? So in a world of where honor is the primary category and not I am my own person and I will do what I want to do, which is our, like that's our cultural assumption. In a world where honor is the primary category, of course women offer their husbands respect and honor. Of course they do. You want your husband to be honored in public, and if you don't honor him, like you're going to get bumped down the rung along with him. What's striking is, for Paul, and this is the case in both spouses, the focus is not on who? The self. Who's the focus on? The other. As to the Lord. So you have two people, part of the church that's been joined to Christ and filled by the Spirit. And the posture is not one of, do what I tell you. Not one of some sort of dictatorial, dominant, submit or else. Like if you read this passage and you think that's what's going on, and people use it that way, a lot of times in the history, they have no idea what the gospel is about. They have no idea what Christian marriage is about. They have no idea what Paul is talking about. They are manipulating the text to their own selfish agenda. Paul is saying, sort of like what he says in Ephesians or Philippians 2, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Right? Look not to yourself, but to the one to whom you are married. What's interesting is wives get so much attention here, but Paul has far more to say to the men than he does the ladies. Like two or three times as much. Like go home and just sort of count the words that he says to the women and then go count the far more extensive paragraph that he says to the men. And so just like Paul, we're going to spend more of our time where he spends more of his time. So you've got this wives' instruction to render honor and respect other-oriented love to the Lord, or to the husband, as to the Lord. And then Paul gets down to verse 25, and he says this, Husbands, love your wives. And this is where things get crazy in the first century. Because if you're a Roman senator, or equestrian, or probably even a decurion, or even further down the rung, you call the shots in your house. Whether it's your wife, your children, or your slaves. You call the shots. You have power of life and death over the people in your house. Paul says, 
your posture to them should not be one of life and death. It should be one of self-giving love that embodies the death of Jesus. And the love that motivated Jesus to go to his death. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just like Christ loved his church. And how did he love his church? With blood. And nails. And thorns. And with whips. And with a cross. Whatever it means to be a head or to have authority or anything like that, it looks like a cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for So if the wife's posture is not a self-seeking, self-interested posture, neither is the husband's. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of your spouse. Why? Because it embodies and dramatizes the relationship between Jesus and his church. It dramatizes the gospel where Christ's arms were spread in perfect love for his bride. When I, like, <laughs> now speak only to the husbands for a moment. When you look at your wife, everything you think and say, everything we think and say, should be shaped and governed by the shape of the cross. If that doesn't make you anxious and nervous and a little bit fearful, you, like you're not reading the Bible with your eyes open. But preacher, you don't understand, I'm not happy in my marriage. Who cares? No, really. I don't care. You think Jesus is like, you know, this is a really uncomfortable cross. I'm not happy here. I think I'll just walk out. Nobody's, like this doesn't say anything about anybody being happy. It says everybody has to die. That's countercultural. What if there's a wedding magazine? <laughs> you know, you walk in Books a Million or Barnes and Noble and back there in the, <laughs> you know, wedding section, you got all the magazines with the dresses and the cakes and all the things and the picture of a bloody body hanging on the cross. Alabama weddings. You don't see that, do you? Does not perpetuate the narrative. Like, I don't, I don't know how to say it more clearly. And Paul has paragraph after sentence after sentence after sentence, insistence after insistence after insistence, that whatever Jesus' posture is toward his church, whatever posture that led him to the cross to spread his arms in perfect love and bleed to death, men, husbands, those who will be married, that is the posture you take now or will take later to your future wife. And if you're not, you've not yet come to understand what the Lord Jesus has for you. This is why marriage is about your holiness and your sanctification. 
Because the more you embody the character of Christ, guys, the more you embody the character of Christ, the more holy you become. Like, holiness ain't a thing. It's not this substance. It's not a gas. It's not like something you can keep in a bucket. It's just Jesus. Holiness is a person. It's not a list of things to do. It's a person who wants to fill us with his life. And your marriage, (laughs) you might have got in it because you thought you found your soulmate. Turns out you got in it so the Lord Jesus could sanctify your soul for the sake of your mate and the church and the world. So when I do uh, premarital counseling, I usually begin just by saying, hey, you know, why you guys want to get married? And different people say different things. It's sometimes it's, you know, well, this person makes me happy, or we just love being together, or, you know, soulmate kinds of stuff. And that's when I tell them, you know, none of that has anything to do with Christian marriage. And typically the mouths kind of fall open a little bit. Some of you may have been in that situation. I don't you remember what it was like. What is it about? It's about self-giving love. And so husbands, what is the consequence? What's the purpose of loving your wife that way? Of dying? Bleeding? Suffering? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Suffer for her? What does that mean? Here's the purpose. Verse 26. I hope it's still open because I want you to read it. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave Himself up for her in order to not save her from hell, not get her to heaven when she dies, but to make her holy. Why did Jesus die? To make His church holy. Why did you get married? To make your wife holy. Not by presenting a list of demands and expectations, but by allowing Nails to be shoved through your appendages. Just hear what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In order to make her holy. By cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind yes so that she may be holy and without blemish you remember those wedding dresses white trains veils the perfect dress The dress, ladies, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, is not about you. It is giving you an opportunity to point to the future glory of the church. The dress, without its wrinkles or stains, is a symbol of the people of God, free from the wrinkles and stains and blemishes of our sin. And Jesus is doing that in us. And one day he'll be finished and we'll be pure, and we'll be whole. And we may think back about the weddings we've been to and all the lovely dresses we've seen, and we may at that moment say, so this is what it feels like to be pure without spot or wrinkle or blemish. 
whatever the tone is in your home, it's got to be oriented toward these kind of goals. If you have any desire for your marriage to function the way God intended it, to dramatize the gospel love of Christ for his church and the church's reverent appreciation for the love of Christ. The troubling thing about this sermon is it's not complicated or unclear. What's striking is, throughout the Old Testament, one of the most common metaphors that God uses for his people is that of an unfaithful bride. You've cheated on me, Israel. You worshipped other gods. You've cheated on me. You broke our covenant. You've run off to other husbands. What's stunning, what's countercultural, what's is that God's posture isn't to abandon his people, it's to die for them. That's not to say there are not legitimate reasons in the scriptures for a marriage to end. There are instances where a relationship is abusive and a person's physical safety is in danger. Scripture allows marriages to end in situations of unfaithfulness, but it doesn't demand it. Abandonment. Spoke with a friend in a, a, another city not long ago, who had been working and working and working, and his spouse just wasn't interested in saving anything. Not much you can do at that point. Let's not get distracted with, but what about my situation? Let's see the ideal. Let's see the purpose. And let's confess that we all fall short of it. We are all broken and stained. We have not yet been made without blemish. But Jesus is good. And Jesus is at work to reproduce his life in us. So Christian marriage requires radical self-denial on both parts. The good news is the holiness that comes with that radical self-denial is where true happiness is found. Marriage is more about our holiness than our happiness. And if we come into it saying, hey, this makes me happy, well, just get ready to be disappointed. 
But if we come into it and allow the Lord Jesus to reproduce His character in us by His Spirit, offering ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of our spouse, our family, the church, if we come into it in that way and Jesus reproduces His character, eventually we will find ourselves happy. Because the whole, you need this to be happy, is still a lie. And it's a false vision of happiness. Real happiness, true happiness, eternal happiness is in Christ. And he has given us marriage and singleness. As an instrument of his grace in our lives to reproduce his character in us. So think about it, friends. Tomorrow afternoon, it's Monday, and I'm home, pile of dishes in the sink, kids haven't done their homework, somebody's going to need to get grounded, house is a mess, I got to work late, don't know what we're going to do for dinner, babies are crying, diapers need to be changed, I just want to go sit on the couch and watch the Braves. Love your wife as Christ loved the church in that moment. And you'll find out what it means to be a man made in the image of God. Women, find a way to offer yourself to your husband in that moment. And you'll find out what it looks like to embody the love of the church for Christ. Self-giving, other-oriented, perfect love. It's nitty-gritty. It gets at the deepest angst in our lives and in our society. And how badly does the world need to see the gospel in our marriages? I'll say this, friends. I'm not altogether without hope, but the church has largely lost the marriage battle in society, largely. Jesus is good, and he can do good things, and he can change that. But for now, it, you know, we've largely lost. And the reason I think we've lost is because we've come to marriage pursuing the one, the soulmate, the one who will satisfy me and make me happy. We don't find that, so we dip out. Instead of coming to it, saying, I'm not here for myself, but for Christ and for you. 100%. If the church, if the world saw that in the church, friends, then they would see a beauty against which there is no argument. A beauty against which there's no court rulings. <laughs> a beauty that surpasses any legislative attempts to do anything, if we showed them Jesus in our homes, if our children saw us, that, like dads, like look at your kids, if my kids see me embody Jesus in my home, in the way that I address their mother, it will change the world. Amen? So before we get caught up in 
cultural battles, let's mind our own business. Let's allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Let's teach our children that marriage is more about their sanctification than their cakes and dresses and tuxes. Things that will burn away, become dust. But the wedding dress of the bride of the Lamb is eternal and beautiful. That's the dress we're working towards. It's about your holiness. And when you find yourself growing in Christ-like holiness, you'll find yourself growing in Christ-like happiness. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.